Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm happy to have you here on this 31st episode of Season 1, featuring Jen Knox, the literary author of The Glass City and After the Gazebo. Before we talk to Jen, I'll be reading to you from Bulletproof, a short story by my husband, Alec Carrick, which was featured in Five Scoops is an Addiction, his collection from Carrick Publishing. But before we get to any of that, I want to bring you our lineup for August. On August 5th, I'll be speaking with Ed Pawarczyk, who is the author of the story we'll be featuring that day, Snake Bit. And uh, that was featured in 13 Claws by the May Dams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing 2017. On August 12th, we'll be speaking with Edith Maxwell. And uh, she is the McCavity and Agatha-nominated author of the Quaker Midwife series. On August 19th, we'll be speaking with Mike Rubin, who is the author of The Cotton Crest Curse and Cashed Out. And on August 26th, we'll be speaking with Michelle Cox, the author of A Girl Like You and A Ring of Truth. And her series looks really terrific. And we'll have some great short stories coming up those days as well. Before we get to today's story, I want to bring you a little bit of a review for the week because I do like bringing you reviews. Now, this is one that uh, ran. It's a show that ran between February and April of 2018. So many of you will have already seen it. But for those who haven't, I'm talking about Homeland starring Claire Danes. And uh, she plays the role of Carrie Matheson, who is a CIA agent who suffers from bipolar disorder. It is a fascinating and truly brilliant series, and season seven is not a letdown at all. We've been binge-watching it in our house, and we are not in the least disappointed. It's carrying forward the story brilliantly. This season also stars Elizabeth Marvell as Elizabeth Keene, who is the current president of the United States, Maury Sterling, of course, as Max Piotrowski, a freelance surveillance expert, Linus Roach as David Wellington, who is the White House Chief of Staff, Jake Weber as Brett O'Keefe, who is a TV host and provocateur, Morgan Spector as Dante Allen, an FBI agent and old friend of Carrie's, and of course, Mandy Patinkin as Saul Berenson, Carrie's former boss and mentor and the new National Security Advisor. And this is, again, I'm going to repeat myself and say that this is a brilliant series. If you like espionage, if you like suspense, if you like crime of any kind, this is a series that you will thoroughly enjoy, starring the very brilliant Claire Danes. And I've said brilliant, I believe, three times. You can count for me. And drop by to our Dead to Rights Facebook page or tweet at me at Dead to Rights Pod. And let me know how many times I use the word brilliant in that review of Homeland Season 7. So now I want to get to today's story. And this is a short one. It's I would call it a flash fiction by my husband, Alec Carrick, which was featured in Five Scoops is an Addiction. And that's from his Scoops series of light-hearted uh, literary fiction. Bulletproof. An actor, a writer a politician, and a rich dude were sitting on the back portico of the latter's mansion. They quaffed a non-alcoholic concoction 
while looking out over an enormous aqua blue swimming pool and a garden vista that stretched a quarter of a mile before being bracketed by a security-enhanced fence and towering evergreens. On the surface of things, the rich dude's existence was the best of all possible worlds, and the others were content to bask in the glow and feed off the scraps scattered at the fringe. The fact they'd known each other all their lives was the reason they were still so close despite their nuanced differences and divergent career paths. What they were doing now was playing a familiar game that never bored them, comparing the thickness of each other's skin. Not in a literal sense, although that might have been fun. After a few bottles of wine at one long-ago social gathering, this had been suggested. Get out the calipers and take a leaf from Shylock's book. Cut off some flesh and measure the depth of the cultaneous level in millimeters. Consistency should also be considered. The inside walls may have become crustaceous as the result of being forged by boiling blood. Each had chosen a profession particularly subject to criticism. Over the years, the reviews had been issued on their works and sometimes they weren't so cheery. Immediate raging anger had to be managed and subsequent below-surface heat that occasionally broke out into brush fires extinguished. The moment had come in their usual proceedings when quiet contemplation replaced embracing bonhomie. Each of the men was lost in thought as the sun set behind them, dispensing a roseate glow over the backyard and their own feelings. The actor had been particularly bruised in his early years. He had the range-riding good looks and outgoing personality that gained him entry into his profession in the first place. But he possessed little of the emotional depth or theater school training to make his first appearances on screen more than ornamental. Many reviewers, knowing potential star charisma when they saw it, were generous and forgiving. Several others, hoping to exploit a weakness while trying to enhance their own reputations and loving the whole sport of the matter, went for their elephant guns. How he'd survived those years remained a mystery. There were days when he didn't leave his home. Deep in his psyche, his sense of inadequacy was allowed to kick up its heels. There were people in his profession he couldn't match in talent. Not now, not ever. His success was a charade. His only relief came from a more than occasional swig of alcohol and snorts and swallows of illegal substances. He was saved by his agent, who gave him an assignment. Henceforth, he was to act confident. That was something he could attempt, an action where he could apply follow-through. At least it got him out the door and onto the red carpet. Emotionally, the process of skin thickening progressed beyond the amateur stage. For the writer, the criticisms of his works were arrows that left ulcerous wounds. Ten great reviews might come to his notice, but a bad one would insinuate its way into his brain and dig for sustenance like a not-quite-dead skunk. The problem was he knew his own weaknesses. 
His hot-button failings, once touched upon, took a monumental effort of confidence-building to cover over. The reviewers themselves were the objects of his personal scorn. Hours were wasted trying to imagine who they were, what they looked like, and where their motivations lay. Maybe he or she was a gin-soaked has-been who was taking out his or her own frustrations with life. Or a kid so young and inexperienced that striking a shared chord would be impossible. Wooing a wife, raising children, the loss of one's parents, all these things changed a person. Such imaginings took him only so far. He knew his writing was at times pedantic. He wasn't always sure who made up his audience. He oftentimes scrambled to find the right word. It was possible he'd never known it in the first place. If he did, it was well hidden now, and shouting Ollie Ollie in free wasn't summoning it back. His drinking progressed beyond its muse-summoning beneficial stage to become an inspiration inhibitor. His wife fretted over her inability to reassure him. Only the implacably loyal family dog offered him solace. There were others in his profession who were better than him. He'd never be able to match them. Not now, not ever. In the earliest stages of his career, the politician made an incredible discovery. Success in his chosen line of work very much depended on the thickness of his skin. If he could stand before an audience and espouse a point of view without flinching while holding firm to his principles, his chances at the polls surged in giant strides. A politician's life was one long series of flesh pressings, backslappings, accommodations, public debates, private schmoozing, and media scrums. The man or woman who could pull it off while still smiling had the best chance of connecting with the electorate. He cleaned himself up, attained sobriety, made restitution to his ex-wife, became a better family man with his new spouse, and won public office. Surface appearance was the message. His thick skin deflected barbs and kept the bottled-up chaos of his own uncertainties contained. Of course, there were those among his colleagues for whom such toxic radiation had to force its way out, but somebody has to be a casualty. They were his stepping stones. His years in government were the most satisfying and rewarding of his life. The contest on the porch always ended with the politician being crowned the winner. There was no doubt whose skin was the thickest. As it always did at this time of night, the realization crept over Silky Sullivan, the rich dude, that the sun was continuing its journey beyond the sight of anyone on his side of the planet. The night creatures were announcing their presence with incessant chirps and whispering bat's wings. Mentally, Silky folded up the corners of his brain and put his three former egos to bed. Alternatively, actor, writer, politician, and now fat cat and venerated senior citizen, he was quite pleased with himself. The criticisms he still received for his wealth, for the mistakes he's made earlier in his several careers, simply for his inherent nature that some inexplicably found offensive, largely bounced off his thick skin. 
Still, there were times when he had doubts. He knew he hadn't achieved all he'd wanted to in his life, nor risen as high in public esteem as might have been attainable. His own reviews of his performance always left him feeling there was more he could have done. It seemed such a pity. There were others compared with whom he would never measure up. Not now, not ever. And that has been Bulletproof by Alec Carrick. And I think it lends a really good message to writers today as we're out there in the world having, in many cases, to market on our own, having to come on shows like Dead to Rights to try to speak to readers. You know, so much has changed in our industry as writers. Uh, to some degree, we do have to become bulletproof. We have to allow the bad reviews to slide off. Drink them in. Take what is good from them. Take what is constructive from them. Build your skills. Get to know your audience and write towards your audience. But when it comes to the worst uh, skin-tearing elements of those reviews, please allow them to bounce off. Acquire a bit of a thick skin because... We were all meant to shine. I believe that in the fervency of my soul, that each one of us was meant to shine. I'm a crime writer, but I like to call myself a literary crime writer. Um, I think that I write literary thrillers. And our guest today, Jen Knox, is a literary writer. So there is some crossover there. Whatever your genre happens to be, shine within it. Find yourself, find your voice, and allow it to come out to the public. And now I want to bring you my interview with Jen Knox. An Ohio-born writer, Jen Knox's writings have been featured in The Best Small Fiction 2017, Braddock Avenue Books, The Adirondack Review, Chicago Tribune's Printer's Row, Chicago Quarterly Review, Cosmonauts Avenue, Fiction Southeast, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, MJI News, the Saturday Evening Post, the Santa Fe Writers Project Quarterly, NPR, and Sequestrum, among others. Jen's writing has been nominated for a Pushcart and multiple Best of the Net Anthologies. She is a writing coach, an educator, and the Academic Programs Manager at OSU's Leadership Initiative. So without further ado, I bring you Jen Knox. Good morning, Jen, and welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? I am doing wonderfully. How are you, Donna? I'm great. And how are things in sunny Columbus, Ohio? We are enjoying the weather. We finally have some nice weather here, which we're um, very excited about. And I think later today I'll be taking my dog to the dog park to celebrate. Excellent. Excellent. She'll be really happy to hear that, I think. <laughs> Yeah, she's actually staring at me now since I said that. So. What's her name? Ati. She's Ati. a boxer mix, a rescue. Oh, okay. How old is she? Or do we not tell? Um, three and a half, actually. Okay, okay. We have a, um, a young border collie just a year and a half by the name of Darcy, and uh, he also is really excited about the nicer weather. Oh, yeah, a year and a half, that's still a lot of energy. Yeah. Right? A little bit of puppy energy. Yes, yes. Oh, he is energetic, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a good boy. <laughs> and 
anyways, Jen, I wanted to talk to you today because I am a big fan of your work. And um, for those who don't know Jen Knox, K-N-O-X, please look her up. Uh, Jen, you're a writer of what I would call literary fiction for the most part and very good literary fiction. Your After the Gazebo is haunting and really touching and um, very strange but beautifully written. Uh, I highly recommend it to listeners. Uh, what was the motivation behind that story? Um, after the gazebo was actually, uh, since we were just talking about our, our pups, um, it's, it's a good segue because uh, the dog that I had prior, uh, we called him Buddy, um, he actually was very, very sick. He had congestive heart failure. He, too, was a rescue. And when we rescued him, he had heartworms. And we got him treated, but since he was already an adult dog, I, I suppose he had had them for a while, and they can cause quite a bit of damage if they've um, been around a while. And um, so he had a murmur, and slowly it, it grew, and he had um, heart failure eventually. Um, so anyway, um, while he was sick, um, I would take him on walks, and sometimes he would you know, have to stop for a while, and he kind of... I'm a very impatient person, and in doing um, this and kind of being forced to slow down and take very slow walks and, you know, wait for him and, you know, kind of spend some time with him, and I, I actually kind of found a sort of meditative calm, um, and this, this happened throughout the course of the summer that he was ill um, before he eventually passed, and... Um, he seemed so happy. He wasn't. He didn't seem like he was in pain most of the time. That he was just slow moving, and so I was. He was on my mind quite a bit, and I think that this summer just kind of made me start to think about, you know, how animals, our relationship with animals, and how animals see the world, how they see us, you know. Um, and I, I started this whole collection, actually, after the gazebo, thinking about our, our relationship to nature and to animals. And um, I've been kind of stuck on this theme a little bit um, ever since um, in different ways. So, mm-hmm. so that was really the, the impetus for the story. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of exploring um, different aspects of, you know, what was going on, you know, in my life as well at that time. But, um, but yeah, I think it was mostly just about that perspective. And there's something else in there, too. There's a strong um, association with our relationship to fate. Is that something that you think about a lot consciously, or is that something that just found its way into the story? I do think about it quite a bit. Um, you know, I, I'm not on a daily basis, you know, kind of uh, cogitating about, you know, fate and its role in, in our lives. However, um, it's something that does come up in, in my fiction. And I, this is the thing that I love about writing is, especially fiction, is that um, because we never really know where it's going to go when we start writing, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times those subconscious thoughts come up and they can be surprising and elucidating and, and sometimes confusing. Yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes we just have to keep writing. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I think that, you know, whenever, you know, obviously, you know, I'm a, a big animal lover and I, I just think there's, there's 
so incredibly and possibly hard to, to watch our little, you know, furry buddies, you know, go. Um, but in that kind of emotionally fragile state, I think that those questions were starting to come up mm-hmm. really without mm-hmm. me consciously thinking about it. And writing was a way to get there. Yeah. So. Yeah. You were, you were, you were focused, no doubt, on the mortality of, of your beloved pet and uh, mortality in literary fiction. Mortality is, um, is a pervasive theme. It really is not only in literary fiction, in most genre fiction, it is too. Um, certainly most of any merit because it's something that's on all our minds, readers and writers. And um, I remember reading an interview with Anne Rice and um, she was asked because she had lost her young daughter to leukemia whether that factored into the character of the young girl who was undead and would live forever. And she denied it vehemently. And um, later, I think many, many years later, recognized the truth in it because it was right after the loss of her daughter that she began writing the Vampire Diaries, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting because she likely legitimately did not see the connection there and and yet it was so deep you know it took a while to surface for her that's that's really cool exactly and that's also you know mortality is also quite the reason i i write you know life's short oh yes (laughs) that is exactly the reason i write my husband um my husband was talking to the kids last night at dinner. We had them out to a, a very nice dinner last night. We do this every once in a while. You've got to socialize these things, you know, <laughs> these children. <laughs> so we had them out to a nice restaurant, and, and he was um, talking to them about when they, you know, when they make decisions about life. And, and so it came up when he first made the decision to, to go into his field, and he asked me, when did I decide to become a writer? And I said, well, I, I don't even know because it was always my plan. And uh, it really was only later in life that I had the confidence and the means to be able to really focus on it. But I can remember when I was 38 thinking, I'm almost 40. And if I don't tackle this now, I may never get the chance. I'm, I've always been, as you said, really impatient and um, mm-hmm. very aware of the end of days, you know. <laughs> Not in a morbid way so much as in a let's get on with it kind of way. Mm-hmm. You know, I I see that a lot in creative people of, of all sorts, and artists and writers and dancers. There seems to be a, a, a forward momentum that can sometimes even be harmful, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, to, especially when you're young. It's like we want to get started early. We want to go explore as much as possible as soon as possible. And sometimes it can get us into a little trouble. But then, you know, I think as we get older, then we we actually, it's a good thing for the most part. Yeah, um, we can focus that impetus a little bit better when we're older and a little bit more disciplined. Um, I, I absolutely know what you're saying because I am someone who left home and struck out on my own at 15. And there was no way I would have waited any longer, even if I had to do it over again. But I will be damned if any of my children would do that. (laughs) I can't even imagine it. My youngest is turning 16 this summer, and I cannot imagine her just getting up and walking out and starting on her own. Do kids do that now? I don't think they do, thank God, because I'm not a mother who could handle that. (laughs) I don't hear about that happening as much, but 
but maybe you know maybe I'm just not hearing about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think it does happen as much. But but certainly from my generation, I think you're a little younger than I am. But from my generation, I'm often surprised at uh, women and men that I'll talk to who will say, "Oh yeah, I did that too," you know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I I left home young as well, and I think that you know um, it's. It's something that I, I wouldn't necessarily take back, but I couldn't imagine being a young person today with the internet and, um, I don't know, our cell phones. And, well, maybe it's because they can't get away because we can track them. <laughs> maybe it's that. Maybe that, that's, that may be an element of it, for sure. I think it's also things like um, we talk a lot about the job market, but it really isn't what it was. Yeah. I mean, I was able to walk out, and uh, at the age of 16, my first serious job was with Bell Canada. And, um, you know, that's a very prestigious company, uh, at least in these parts, and uh, it was a very good job. And it was a full-time, permanent job. Um, I'm not sure that many 16-year-olds could just, you know, go to a, a temp agency and get on with a company like Bell and end up being hired the way you could then. College education is is almost required, and some kind of level of technical skills, even you know, in some regard, is a lot of times you know hired as far as like technology. And I say technical, like I, it seems like you need some kind of base level marketing or HTML or some kind of. You, you know, do. You you have to have a skill. You absolutely have to have a yeah. skill. And my kids are very independent. I'm not a, a cloying mom or anything like that. They're very independent, but I can't imagine them having done what I did. Uh, we veered off quite a bit, but we started by talking about mortality. <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about the Glass City. So the Glass City um, is a collection that is largely about ecological disasters and um, human resiliency. So um, I was, I'm kind of fascinated by the way that when we we have a natural disaster, people seem to come together and drop all of the crazy biases that make us fight. And, you know, it's almost like when we have a bigger thing to deal with. I don't want to say enemy, you know, Mm -hmm. but when we have a a common, uh, you know, challenge, Mm -hmm. we we bond together and we realize, oh yeah, we are, you know, all one, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. we should support each other because we need to survive. And some of the most beautiful moments of humanity can come out as a result of a natural disaster. Um, Meanwhile, I also think that we underestimate Mother Nature and her ability to take us out. Again, I'm kind of circling back to mortality, but I think that, you know, um, the concept of natural disasters and, and seeing what's going on in the world and really paying attention to those news stories, even if they don't directly affect you currently, mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's important to acknowledge. Um, and so many of these stories are a little over the top, a little bit more magical realism than I've ever written in the past. They, they have elements of that are just a, a, a little bit off, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, there, there's a story in which, um, it, and this was based on an uh, experience I had in, in San Antonio, Texas. <clears throat> we, when I first moved there, and I was there for about 10 years, I was driving home, and I saw 
little brown droplets, you know, falling down on my windshield. And then they started increasing, and I realized as I turned on my windshield wiper that it was like mud, and so it was streaking my windshield with basically, so I couldn't see, and I was mm-hmm. like, it's raining mud here in Texas. <laughs> I didn't know that it did that anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, it was, it was a strange storm where, you know, some debris had been picked up, and, but it was basically kind of raining mud for a good 20 minutes, and that kind of stuck with me, and, you know, some, something like eight years later, I started writing this story about something like that happening, and but the storm becoming huge, you know, kind of like what would happen if you mix, you know, a horrendous rainstorm with like the dust bowl, right? You mm-hmm. know, and then and so much was coming down that people were actually turning into, you know, these like immovable figures. It was it was actually immobilizing people, and so you know, I, I kind of took things a little bit further than mm-hmm. you know probably be feasible but um in doing so I was able to take these concepts and and not be preachy or you know oh we have to pay attention to our environment but rather actually Mm -hmm. explore them in an interesting way hopefully you know spark some conversations but then at the same time you know but fiction gives us fiction gives us a huge ability to tap into exactly what Mm -hmm. you just said about being able to explore truths, the kernel of truth within the fiction, without having to cast a lot of moral judgments. We have the freedom just to make up a story and tell it, and um, let the reader decide what to draw from it, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and we never know what they will draw from it. I mean, so no. many <laughs> I think, like, oh, that, you know, that's, yeah. that's craziness, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, never imagine you know and some of them are a little bit you know less out there you know but they all deal with different types of natural disasters and um and so you know I just think that it's it's an interesting topic too because um like I was saying before the human reaction is it, it can be somewhat it can be very beautiful it can be transformational um and I think when we survive something when we we transform in a way that um, it's almost like, you know, we we could have never imagined ourselves that way before we endured. Mm -hmm. And so I like finding those beautiful moments within pain or within challenges Mm -hmm. that we have. Mm -hmm. And honestly, all of my fiction tries to to tap into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, there, there is a, a very common saying, I'm not going to pretend I coined it, <laughs> there but for the grace go you or I. And um, I mean, this was something that my parents believed fervently, that uh, you're always just really one paycheck away from total disaster in this life. And when you talk about uh, global disaster, uh, natural disasters, we're really only just one bad windstorm away from that. And... Um, so you're right, it does draw the compassion out of us because we can see ourselves in those positions so easily, I think. Absolutely, and I think in recognizing our vulnerability, I think, you know, it's a, it's also a way to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Because you realize, you know, even though, let's say, someone's rude to you at the grocery store or, or whatever, you know, you, you get really upset about that or someone cuts you 
but if, you know, what are you, what's really um, being accomplished by mm-hmm. being upset and, and worrying about that when, when you really think about it, you pan back a little bit, it's like, okay, that person is probably, it has nothing to do with me. It's, they're probably just having a horrible day and yeah. perhaps I did that, you know, last week. I mean, maybe I didn't, you know, but, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's the kind of thing that I just think, you know, because, hey, we're not perfect. And there's a, a moment for those of us who recognize our own imperfection. There's a moment where we take a look at ourselves during our lives. It may come soon in our lives and it may come late. Where we look at ourselves and we recognize, not only am I not perfect, but I'm never going to be perfect. You know, I can try. I can always do my best. That's certainly a noble cause. But I'm never going to be perfect. So maybe I need to cut the world a little slack, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think I think that that's what, the kind of thing you know that you know people need to get tattooed on their arm. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I am not and never will be perfect. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Put it in any language you like. <laughs> Put it in Chinese characters if you like. It'll be beautiful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> better than better than most of the messages probably oh I think so yes I think so well I know that it comes through in your writing I've read a a fair bit of your work and it does that compassion for humanity comes through in your writing and it's a thrill to read when you when you get somebody and I don't want to embarrass you with the praise but when you find a writer who actually does speak with the authority of true compassion it's um it's a wonderful thing uh, it, it's a compelling read, whether you whether you're a fan of the genre or not. Um, it makes for a compelling read. I think most readers are looking for that secretly. You know, they're looking for that moment of yes, I'm connecting with people, and I'm going to help you connect with people. That that kind of feeling, which sounds pretty highbrow, I know, but that's the sense I get when I read of your work. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. That that, that is a, a beautiful thing to say, but that's absolutely what I look for too. You know, I I crave authors that I can just feel like, you know, wow, okay, I'm am connecting. It's almost as though you know you get so entrenched that the the words kind of disappear and you're living, you know, mm-hmm. what you're reading and and you're. In in some in one way or another, you know, um, and even if just on an emotional level or even on an intellectual level, but when you you can actually become fully immersed in something, I think in our age when we're so easily distracted by so yes. many like things and you know updates and you know status alerts. You know. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't know how many times in the day I can stand to be alerted. <laughs> It does. It gets tiresome for sure. Breaking news and everything is, you know, and so I, I think that reading right now, like I, I, I work at OSU and I talk to a lot of young people who say it's so hard for me to read, you know, anything longer. And I'm like, oh, but you have to try because if only you do, you know, Mm -hmm. if only you just try to commit, I'm telling you the payoff will be great because that part of your brain deserves some time yes <laughs> you deserve yeah. to slow down just like my pup slowed me down you know yeah. and, and and made me think about the world in different ways like 
I think books do that too. You know, yeah, pets do it, books do it, children do it. Um, I mean, anything that you can connect with outside yourself. We're all in a hurry, and every time somebody honks on the road, I'm reminded of much what you said. Um, everybody's in a hurry, and it really it does just become noise pollution. And as soon as you've got something outside yourself that you've got to connect with and say, okay, well, you're not in the same hurry I am. Um, when I was younger, I used to have a colleague, and it was kind of a standing joke because I'm a little short person, and I've learned to walk really fast in my life. I'm a fast walker. And, uh, and my colleague, I won't say her name because I wouldn't want to embarrass her. She was a very, very slow walker, and we were good friends. We'd walk all the time together. And the joke was that I was like a puppy. I would kind of run circles around her as we were walking because <laughs> I just couldn't walk that slowly. I'd always feel like I was going to fall over if I walked that slowly. It's like riding a bike too slowly, you know. <laughs> but you do. Just taking it in one yeah. step at a time. <laughs> exactly. But you just have to, you have to learn to do that to a great extent in life. And it, it just increases the value of your life so much. So tell me about some of your other short story works. I know you've got a number of them. Um, I was looking at some today. Um, so I in so the Glass City um, was my my last book, and that um, that book was um, the winner of uh, the Prize Americana for Prose, which I'm I'm pretty excited about. I saw um, that. Yes, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. I'm very, I'm very excited about that. It was, it was wonderful to work with um, Press Americana. They're fantastic. Their um, fiction imprint is uh, Hollywood Books International, and they only print two books a year. And the two books that they print, one is poetry, one is fiction, are the winners of this contest. So they're, they're a nonprofit, and they also um, publish uh, some, you know, kind of. I don't want to say meditative, but um, but very very smart political exploratory essays and um, community focused exploratory essays, sometimes sociological um, <clears throat> bent to them. Um, they so they they do a lot of um, interesting work, and so I'm a big fan of them. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that book was after the gazebo, and that was. Um, published by Rain Mountain Press, and mm -hmm. so that is also a, a collection of short fiction that is, um, you know, led by the namesake after the gazebo. Um, and I, I mean, um, like I said, almost everything in there is something to do with animals. You know, don't tease the elephants. You know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. I've got a lot of I've got a lot of um, animals going on in there. Um, so prior to that, I, I had published a very short chapbook, which is actually no longer in print, which was called Don't Tease the Elephant, and it was just five very short fictions. Um, and I'm kind of going back in time because um, at that point, when I published that chapbook, um, I, uh, I was starting to write this character, and his name was Rattle, and we were talking about tattoos earlier. Um, Ravel is a character who has shown up in, I would say, probably a dozen short stories um, that I've published over the last mm, four years uh, or so, five, four or five years. And he, um, he is a, a wanderer. Um, he is uh, usually, it, he is not the narrator of the story. Usually his story is told by other folks. 
so he is like it's almost like he's stepping into their lives and then he steps out and in some way changes them in mm-hmm. different ways not necessarily for the better <laughs> at least not circumstantially for the better <laughs> but um what what's cool about um writing fiction because i wrote you know largely non-fiction and essays that's what i went to school for was non-fiction creative non-fiction essays um and I got a lot out of that um, as, a, as a writer, and I, I feel like people love to read nonfiction. I feel like it's probably more marketable and things like that. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I, but the thing is, is that when I, I kind of moved over to fiction, I found this kind of cool thing happening. And, and there was this old joke in grad school, I went to Bennington, that if you wrote fiction, everybody would accuse you of, you know, veiling your memoir. And if you wrote your memoir, everybody would accuse you of lying. Yes. That is really and a good so, capture of the whole thinking. Yes. <laughs> so, so when I wrote my, I started writing fiction, though, it was interesting because I felt like I could dig a little deeper than I could when I was writing nonfiction. So when I wrote nonfiction, I, I was very exploratory. I was always looking at my experiences, you know, just kind of um, trying to figure out motivations, but I mean, not only other people's, but my own, you know. And then, um, but when I started writing fiction, I had this, like, sort of freedom where I felt like, okay, I, you know, since this isn't me, since these characters aren't people I know, since this is just completely, you know, it's fun. It's it's not something exploratory, but also I I found my the emotional stuff the um, some of the emotional truths coming out in a more powerful way, mm-hmm. um, and it was kind of cool. And I started seeing these recurring characters like Rattle, and I think that each character that would just kind of naturally find his or her way back into my fiction, either as a cameo in one story, the star in another, whatever. Um, I they kind of represented something about, you know, what I was thinking about or what I was reacting to or what I was seeing in the world at that particular time. Mm-hmm. And so um, I honestly rattle wandered and he hung around for quite a while. And it's just been maybe the last year or so that I haven't really, he hasn't really snuck into any of my writing and who knows maybe he will again. He had said what he needed to say up until that point, I would imagine. I, I kind of see the divide between fiction and nonfiction this way. I think that um, if you want to be a really, really good writer, you'll practice to write some nonfiction because nonfiction doesn't have the distraction of great imagination. I mean, there's imagination in all creativity and all writing. But it doesn't have the distractions that pull you away from the elements of technique. Um, conveyance, conveying an idea, conveying knowledge, conveying whatever it is you need to convey in a piece of nonfiction. Um, it pulls you back to the point time and time again. And I think that's exceptional training for any writer, fiction or nonfiction, to be able to keep coming back to the point. But nonfiction is where I see real truth. Uh, I just, I mean, not nonfiction, I I should say, fiction is where I see real truth, Uh, particularly in great writers. Um, Real truth comes out in fiction in ways it simply can't in nonfiction. 
Yeah, you know, I and I mean, it kind of circles back to, to Anne Rice and what, what she had, her realization that was sort of late-breaking. I mean, I think sometimes it's so true that we don't even see it for a while. Yes. And we go back and we read our, our, our words and then we say, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Kind of about, you know, me or my mother or, you know, what was going on politically in the world at the time yes. or whatever, yes. you know. Um, so, so, yeah, I think it, it does offer writers a great freedom there. And it also offers readers that um, ability to interpret a little more. I, I do feel as though I will write nonfiction again, but I I do, um, and I, I, every now and then I write like a very short essay. Like I recently wrote a, a short essay about a really, really bad day. I saw that and I was reading that. That was really very well written. That's at the Gen Knox website. Um, and it's, uh, what is the title of the essay again? Um, it was How to Breathe Through the, the Very Bad, or How to Breathe Through the Bad Days. But I also had, I almost had titled it, you know, that you remember the Alexander. Yes. The, <laughs> no good, very, very bad, bad day. <laughs> <laughs> that was just too long of a title. So. Um, yeah, but that was, you know, it was just one of those things that, and uh, this brings me to like one of the pure joys of being a writer, um, ironically, is that I, I was just back to Columbus, Ohio. I just moved back to my hometown, and um, I was the second, it was the second day of my brand new job at OSU, and I was uh, just taking my pup to get, you know, a coffee, like, cause she like to ride with me, and she was still nervous about the new place and everything. And I got a flat tire, and then they didn't show up, and then when they finally did show up, they couldn't fix it, and, you know, and then we got slowed down by a gaggle of geese when we were trying to get home, and then, you know, and I was just trying to get to work, and then mm -hmm. my dog runs away right when we get home. It was just one thing after another, and it was so comical. It was like, it felt like I was in the middle of a sitcom. Yes. But at the same time, I did not find any humor at all I was going through. <laughs> not in the moment, um, for sure. No. But the cool thing about writing is that when you go through these, like, bad days or even really truly traumatic things, you know, like, or truly painful things when you go through illnesses and things like that, I, I feel like, you know, you, as a writer or as any kind of creative person, you know that you have an outlet for that later on. Yes. And I think that, um, in, in a way, um, going through you know, little difficulties and or big difficulties. Like sometimes that that those are the the kind of times when you you realize like, oh my gosh, okay, I think that I can explore this, and you kind of transcend a little bit. Yeah. You know, not to yeah. to overstate, but it can kind of transcend your work too a little bit because you you start to pan back and re-explore your experiences, and you kind of take control of them, which is kind of cool. Yes. But um. But that's something that nonfiction can really afford that I, I really I really do like. Um, but it's also a very vulnerable place. And I find that with fiction, people feel freer to interpret. And they may still say, like, oh, that's you, you know, which is fine, whatever. But or a lot of times they'll say, that's me in there, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> I've had that. I've had that. I've had people say, and I and nothing could have been further from the truth. But they, for whatever reason, saw themselves in one character or another, and they were sure that I had uh, concocted that character based on them. You know? I know. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I mean, but that, that means your writing is really connecting with them, I yeah. think. You know, because... Yeah. 
because they're they're seeing that and they're like, oh yeah, okay. I but this is your you deeper know, like... empathy too, Jen. Honestly, <laughs> this is your deeper empathy because I've spoken with probably thirty-five writers so far for this podcast. And I think uh-huh. that you're the first one that really explored this from the reader's point of view. The fact that not only as writers we can interpret things the way we see fit, we have a lot of freedom, we can put a lot of imagination into it, but also readers can do that. And I think that comes down to your empathy for, for others and your connection with your readers. And it's very telling because Friday night, our son was almost finished reading The Diary of Anne Frank. And... Um, our second son is going to be 20 this summer. And he said, you know, is there anyone who hasn't read this book? Everybody has got to read this book. Because when he was exploring, for, well, just to give you a concrete example, he had gotten to the part where he realized the end was was there. And they had almost made it. They'd almost made it to the Allied forces coming and saving them. And uh, he was so moved, and this is my 20-year-old boy, so there is hope for this generation. Um, Mm -hmm. He was so moved, and he said, everybody has got to read this, because he said, I don't think young people are really open to their emotions the way your generation, meaning my generation, was. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some truth in that. I think uh, we live in a video game society. Um, I, I read through multiple forms. I read through audible, listening. I read through I read through reading on my Kindle, through media on YouTube, and I'll pick up a book. I mean, I'll do any of those things. I'm the crossover generation, I guess. There's yeah, nothing like yeah. picking a book up to engross you. None of the other mediums engross you quite the same way as a book. I agree. I I can only read um, like nonfiction or. Uh, Things with very short chapters on on electronic devices in general. I, I tend to read short short fiction or short nonfiction, um, and and sometimes you know it, it's usually kind of my you know I'll, I'll read before I go to bed on on my Kindle or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I love like for like a, a good novel or, or or even something I just really want to dig into. You know, um, it, I really do love that that physical book I mm-hmm. I really I, I worry about the physical book <laughs> you know? yeah I worry about it too now I'm not I don't want to mislead anyone I'm not one of those people that goes on and on about there's nothing like a paper book I read extensively on my Kindle and I listen extensively on Audible because it's the only way I have time to keep up with things um, yeah I do love Audible yeah. Audible is great because I have a bit of a commute and I'm I'm like able to read on my yes. commute, you know. It's so it's. I mean, because I'm driving, there's no there's no yep, that's the thing. here in Columbus, Ohio. That makes sense. So yep. so I'm like I'm you know I'm driving and I'm listening it to all kinds of books and I'm just like oh this is so great you know because mm-hmm. um, I get my fix. Yeah, and I'm I'm an avid walker. I, I'm not a person who's athletic. I never have been, but I recognized a number of years ago that. You know, if you don't move, you're going to become immobile. So I'm an avid walker. So in go the earphones, and this is when I will get a lot of my reading done is by listening to Audible. Um, So I'm not one of those people that just goes on and on decrying the loss of the paper book. But I do know still that when I sit down with a paper book, I still am transported in a way that nothing else can do. Yeah. I I think they kind of demand the 
the the time like I, or maybe it's just for me it's a ritualistic thing like I, I like to sit cross-legged on a comfy chair with my book and some tea you know and mm-hmm. just totally dig in you know yes. and, and lose myself a little bit um and I, I just love that but that's that's kind of sacred time you yeah. know um, my husband and I actually were this, when we moved here to Columbus we bought our, our first home and we were on a corner a lot and we love our little home and we decided I don't know if they um, they have many of these um, where you are but there are these little free lending libraries um, that you can put in your front yard and um, they're, they're just little tiny structures two shelves worth of books um, yes I've seen those books. yeah yeah, so we're we're building one of those currently, <laughs> so, um, and you can register it. And so we were like looking at the area where we live, and there are only three within like a ten mile radius. You know, how many people are in a ten mile radius? Probably I don't know, like fifty thousand, right? So like we we were looking at this this map, and we're like, okay, yeah, so we're going to be one of the one of the libraries here. So we're pretty excited about it, but hopefully we can actually build the thing so that it. it Yes. Yes. But that's my my little way of you know hopefully you know sharing my love of you know the actual physical books because I do still love them and I do see that bookstore after bookstore is closing down and um, I'm pretty sure Barnes and Noble is in trouble. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But there you you did say one you had one little phrase there that kind of got glossed over about. um, your attention being forced when you read to stay on the page. And there's a lot of truth in that. And maybe that's why it still can transport us in the way that other medium can't. Because I know even when I watch, um, when I watch subtitled films, I am far more engrossed in the film than I am when it's in my own first language. And I'm forced to read. I'm forced to keep my eyes and ears on it. I can't stand dubbing because I, I, I have this sense that dubbing is so manufactured. It's like drinking plastic milk. I can't do it. You know, I can't drink uh, edible oil product. Um, I just can't drink it, you know, and it's the same thing with dubbing. I can't watch someone with gravitas on their face speaking in a voice that I know is manufactured and homogenous and I just can't stand it. So all of the foreign films we watch, and we do watch a lot of them, they're all subtitled. Um, And I always feel like I know the language. I'm so engrossed in it. The feeling is as if I'm hearing them speak, you know, through a babblefish kind of thing, even though I, I don't. I don't lay claim to any of those languages, you know. Yeah, no, I, I actually, now that you say that, that is very true. I have not watched a subtitled film in quite a while, um, but I I do remember, you know, that, that kind of sense of, you're kind of getting the multi-sensory input, you know, you're actually reading, so you're being an active participant in the, yes. the media. Yes, yes. And then you're, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That's what it is, you're really plugged into it, yeah, exactly. Anyways, Jen, it's terrific talking to you, and I really enjoy having you on. Thank you very much for coming on Dead to Rights. Will, will you stay with me for just a sec after I turn off the recording? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time and this fantastic conversation. 
I want to thank Jen Knox for appearing with us today on the Dead to Rights podcast. It's been great having Jen and having her, her wisdom and her pearls come out to all writers. Please be sure to join us next week when we'll bring you Ed Piwarczyk, the author of Snakebit and many other short stories. And uh, it'll be a thrill to speak with Ed. He is a fantastic editor, and I'm hoping that he'll talk to us a little bit about his editing self as well as his writing self. You can find the Dead to Rights podcast at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page, and we invite you to engage with us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, donnacarrick.com. My husband and partner in crime, Alec Carrick, is on Twitter at Alex underscore Carrick or at AlexCarrick.com. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us all original story scoring music. You can find more of Ted's music at his YouTube page, Ted Carrick Music, or on Twitter, at Ted Carrick. Thank you for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. A dusty road, a man alone. His vital signs go on. The years have turned my gold And I told you what you told me We'd never be in the same boat for free Yet it rides Let it ride